Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 681.IS4204, certificate number 22194, the Kamehameha Colonists. Dr. Martin Luther King saw this power of aloha when he first visited our islands in 1959. After he returned... Back to the mainland, Dr. King said of his visit, as I looked at all these various faces and various colors mingled together like the waters of the sea, I could see only one face, the face of the future. This is Aloha. Since you got back from Maui uh, in the winter. I've been feeling... Very aloha. You've been trying to live your life in accordance with the spirit of aloha. Trying. And it is not it is not easy, and I am not always successful. Could you define the spirit of aloha for the future in which it may not rain? I cannot. I do not believe that I am I am in a position to define the spirit of aloha. It's it's what? It's the sound of one shark tooth necklace <laughs> clicking. You can't <laughs> you can't exp- is it because we're not on the islands and then we're not so we're not allowed to talk about it? Is this like uh, Freemasonry? It's not I, I think that I don't fully understand what aloha means to Hawaiians, so all I can do is explain what aloha means to me. I see. It would be uh, appropriation. It would be gibberish for me to try and interpret like the grand and and ancient tradition of aloha. What does it mean in your daily life? For me, aloha is a it's a way of accepting the way things are in the moment. I I came to aloha because I was in Hawaii, I was stressed, I was anxious. There were a lot of real-world things intruding, but every day I made an attempt to go snorkeling. And part of what would happen as I would go snorkeling, right? I have a lot of recently I've been feeling a lot of anxiety, and that anxiety takes the form of claustrophobia. Uh, you know, like I get short of breath. I get worried that I'm my breath is constricted. I feel like snorkeling may not be the right hobby. Well, precisely. <clears throat> this is why Mindy can't snorkel. My wife loves snorkeling and gets gets kind of claustrophobic. It's very claustrophobic, and I'm and I don't feel like the world's greatest swimmer either. Growing up in Alaska, like swimming was was a secondary. In Alaska, pursuit. if you're in the polar bear club, it means you've actually. <laughs> had sex with a polar bear. It's like the Mile High Club. It has nothing to do with swimming in cold water. But actually in Alaska, the Mile High Club just means uh, <laughs> that you've been high yeah, for one mile of Alaska. It's marijuana road. related. But, uh, but, so what I, but I love to snorkel. And so what I did every day was a kind of aversion therapy or however you would describe it. I would go down to the beach by myself. I would put my snorkel on. I would walk out into the water and I would just backwards. You got to walk out backwards with the fins. <laughs> you have fins on. I would. I I'd take the fins out into the water and then put put them on. But I would put my face under the water and just breathe until I could manage it. And then I would sort of float off. And what's wonderful about Maui is you don't have to go very far before you're encountering wonderful turtles and sea life. So every day I would go out, and I was there. I was sort of somewhat. Forced to be in Maui. I know that seems like not really a oh, huge problem. Oh, so sorry. But I had to be there for like 18 or 19 days. Yeah, you, it was a long trip. And um, and so every day this became a methodical process. I would 
whatever I was doing, I would put my stuff down. I would go out to the beach. I'd go out and get my breathing together and go snorkeling. I was trying to manage my emotions and my troubles, but also try and take something good back with me to the shore. And what I realized was that the that when I was in the water, the sea creatures there, the turtles, like they didn't, presumably they don't have very much anxiety. They might have a little bit of shark anxiety. I don't think they even have that. But they've just got, they've got food around them. Their two modes are getting eaten by a shark or not getting eaten by a shark. It would have to be a heck of a shark. They don't dread the former. They don't look, they don't enjoy the latter. They just know which of the two states they're in. You know, they're enormous beasts. So what kind of, what kind of shark would you have to be? And I hear they're doing great. I just read a thing about how populations are growing in Hawaii. So we may be speaking to uh, intelligent uh, sea turtles. I, I hope we are, but there, there are. Sorry, I said you only have. <laughs> there are turtles in profusion, you know, everywhere you go. I, I thought it was so special the first time I was swimming with a tortoise and then, or a turtle, and then it happened like three more times that week. It still does feel very special, yeah. you know, and, and so I tried to, like, I tried to understand, because when you're in Hawaii, you realize that it's very easy to bring your sort of mainland expectations about how customer service is going to work, the line at the at the post office, how it should and could be. And Ho- Aloha, Aloha is not about efficiency. No. Hawaiians are doing their daily life and they have a they have a tempo. And I needed to put that mainland energy behind me. And my daily routine with the turtles and the fact that I started to get into the groove of Maui and not have as many expectations about how things how other people should be. It's about letting, letting life come to you. Letting go and letting God. Yeah, it was a little bit, um, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful public swimming pool in Maui that is open to the public at no cost. In Kihei? In Kihei. No, I didn't know that. It's, an, it's a fantastic pool. And when you think about all the, the rigmarole that you have to go through to use a Seattle public pool. Right. Try to get a library card here sometime if you have a few hours. And this is just, this is a, this is a huge pool complex. And I mean, there are rules, there are lifeguards there, but you just kind of stroll in and go to the pool, however you like and whenever you like. And it, and you swim there all day if you want. I just felt like, wow, I wish I could bring some of that kind of administrative aloha back to Seattle, which it feels like a kind of rule bound town. Your aloha appears to be all internal. I never see you wearing any kind of necklace, a necklace made of shells. You're never doing a I don't a do shaka. a shaka. I do have, I did at one point buy a little. You don't call me bra? I don't. I have, I do have a little sea turtle dish that it's in the shape of a turtle that I put my keys in. I bought it because I had an experience with a turtle one day. And then I was and he gave a, you that. And then I was at a store and I was like, that, that little tourist turtle dish looks exactly like my turtle. <laughs> and I, you know, this cost me a couple of bucks, but, but no, no, I'm, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to push it as a belief system. I'm just, when I get, when I get a little bit wound up here, I, I just say aloha. It's in a way it's like my transcendental meditation mantra, which I'm not supposed to share and which I don't have. Well, I mean, for the cost of a round trip to Maui, you probably could have got a TM <laughs> mantra. Is that a couple thousand bucks? Yeah, a couple thousand, or maybe just a thousand. But I say, I say aloha to myself whenever, a, as a response, an internal response, when somebody cuts me off in traffic and I start to see red, I'm like, wait, aloha. You need one of those Lahula girls undulating on your dashboard. Yeah. To remind you. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of, I'm, I already resemble uh, the dude a little bit. <laughs> And it's just sort of, as I get a little older, I get more and more dude. It's a thing I admire in other people. I think it's a trait that I'm nowhere near. So it is kind of like watching some kind of guru or or messiah figure. Just when I see somebody who is just kind of unflappable. You don't have a ton of aloha. Uh, yeah, I will say. I'm aloha free. No, you have some aloha. You do let, there's what percentage, some. What percentage of aloha would you say I am? There's a, you have a water off a duck's back quality that I admire. You don't, you don't but, get. But, but nihilism is not aloha. <laughs> Those are two, it might be the other end of the spectrum. Like there are a couple of reasons why you could say, eh, F it. And I don't, I don't think they're all aloha. My friend Tom, who runs the bookstore near me, just always has this very kind of placid quality. Not like somebody who's got it all figured out or someone who doesn't care. Like you can tell he has 
you know, a private life with his own intense struggles and challenges. But, uh, but you know, but in that moment, he is going to, uh, you know, not trouble you with that and instead just be very much about that interaction and, you know, somehow just some ability to leave you with kind of a, a placid feeling like you're in a sun-dappled glade. But he's not a simple person. You're, you're not, I mean, right. this is the question. Can you be that way and and still be complicated and emotionally right. interesting. Because I don't, and I don't like to exoticize, you know, the Polynesian people by saying because of their simple life and closeness to the land, and and uh, very slow moving shave ice lines, <laughs> that they <laughs> that they uh, that they take away my my or twenty first century urban angst. It's mm -hmm. you know because it's uncomfortable to racialize it like that. If nothing else, right? It's not a it's not a simplicity. It's um. It's clearly a choice. Well, how it is practiced in the Hawaiian Islands and how you would uh, identify it in a person here as a kind of, like the word placid has associations, right? I would never, I would never use placid as a compliment, for instance. Oh, to me it's the ultimate compliment. Really, placid. Yeah. Um, what if it, what if it was tranquil? Is that better? Tranquil, I guess I could go with, I mean, I, I, because I've, because my whole life I have associated sophistication and complexity with angst and yeah. like Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> angst und Kampf. <laughs> I don't, it's always been difficult for me to reconcile the fact that somebody can be not just smart, but also like complex and at the same time tranquil. And when I see it, it's usually, I feel like someone has adopted yoga in a way that feels maybe a little appropriative or, you know, like I, like where are, where <laughs> you is You are this doing an from? impression of <laughs> yeah. somebody you saw in a George Harrison documentary. <laughs> because it's not the way you were as a kid. Because so many of those George Harrison types, if you, if they do get into trouble, if something bad does happen, they can suddenly blow their stack and their entire, their entire North Jersey childhood all comes scream, you know, screaming out in a chain of invective. But, you know, whatever the Aloha spirit enables people to do, whatever kind of, you know, personal, not just tranquility, but, you know, depths of, you know, reserves of capability and, um, you know, confidence and competence that it engenders is, uh, is kind of what makes our story possible today. Uh, a story of 130 young Hawaiian men from the 1930s who did something very unusual, which was uh, pretty much forgotten for 60 or 70 years until a museum exhibit uh, in Honolulu and a subsequent documentary finally told their story. These are the men who colonized three tiny coral islands in the South Pacific, Jarvis Island, Baker Island, and Howland Island for their country and did so entirely under the radar. It was, it was a top secret federal mission from President Roosevelt himself when he wasn't sending Captain America out on top secret missions, he was sending 130 Hawaiian kids out uh, to colonize these three uninhabited islands. Really? Where were the islands in the archipelago? They are nowhere near Hawaii. They're about, they're, they're kind of midway between Hawaii and Australia, actually. There's, that's a long, there's that's a, a long way And there. there's nothing there, which is what makes these islands, which would otherwise just be nothing burger, you know, five mile islands, extremely important. Uh, Jarvis Island is in the Line Islands. Baker and Howland are, I believe, in the Phoenix Islands. Oh, so they're not uh, even together as a... Um... They are not an archipelago. They are far away. They're, uh, they're together with nothing. They are extremely isolated little islands. And in fact, I said that they were five miles long, and I was actually over-guessing. It's only like... Uh, the, you know, these islands are... These little shoals are less than two square miles in size. Are they inhabitable? Do they have fresh water? They do not have fresh water. They do not have vegetation. They have none. There's a reason why there's nobody on them. There were, uh, you know, there were the, the early Pacific sailors, both Polynesian navigators and European sailors who sighted them and dutifully put them on their charge, charts, charge. On their charge. Take me to charge. You know, the Polynesian charts would have been uh, a series of fibers knitted together in kind of a grid with little puka shells marking islands. Oh, interesting. And, uh, yeah. Do those survive? Have you ever seen these maps? Yeah, they're in museums. Their maps were made of, you know, jute essentially marking currents and winds and waves. 
and little oh, little fantastic. shells for islands. And in the late 19th century, I think the British realized that the bird guano on these islands oh, was, was super the, valuable. Yeah, right. And they would mine it, right? Yeah, they would just take steam shovel fulls of, uh, of bird guano off these islands for the phosphates, which you could use in fertilizers and explosives. <laughs> because the birds love these islands. See, there's literally nothing else for a thousand miles around. Right. So they all, they all pull up and take naps. They all pull up and nest and rest and whatever birds do and poop apparently. Right. Um, so the. That, well, birds, yeah, this is, they're famous for holding their poop the entire time they're over the ocean. <laughs> and just saving it for when they get to an island. That explains what happened to me at the Ballard Locks the other day. <laughs> the uh, So these British and Amer the later American guano companies would hire Polynesian labor from Hawaii, the closest place. Um, so they'd have Hawaiian kids come out there and work in these awful conditions, you know, and pay, pay them to, I'm sure not very well, to... Mine guano. To mine guano. A place where, with no shade and no water. We found something worse than coal mining. What if it's bird poop? <laughs> exactly. No shade, no water. No, these islands are extremely flat. I guess um, most of Jarvis, for example, is five feet above sea level, mm -hmm. just from end to end. There's one little rise that's 20 feet. Oh. But except for that, yeah, you, there's okay. the Mile High Club. Well, listen, I'm gonna, I, my goal is to summit every <laughs> island in Polynesia. <laughs> Summit Jarvis. Well, you better do it quick. Pretty soon the 20-foot part is going to be the only part left of Jarvis. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Um, but in 19, in the mid thirties, uh, so once the guano companies left, these islands were uninhabited and they were also kind of terra nullius. No, nobody had a, any kind of sovereignty claim to them. Because not, because everyone cited them, but nobody planted a flag. Everyone cited them, but nobody wanted them. This uh, is, these are like, uh, Amelia Earhart islands, right? Isn't this right, right where she was? One of these actually is Amelia Earhart Island, Howland Island. Although it's, we can't really call it Amelia Earhart Island because spoilers, she never arrived there. But, but is, which one is the island where her, where reputedly her cigarette lighter and her, uh, and a little bit of the airplane? I think the possible crash site was not one of these islands. It was closer to Papua New Guinea. So Howland was the destination that maybe she never made it to. Oh. Uh, and there was somebody on the island when that happened, as we shall see. But, you know, it was for that reason. You know, commercial aviation is taking off. Suddenly these little tiny specks of coral in the Sandbar. middle of the ocean... Yeah, they have, they have strategic value because you could put an airstrip on here. Planes could not get across the Pacific back then, as we've covered on, on earlier shows. Uh, right. The entry about the, uh, the double sunrise and the one about the transcontinental arrows. Um, you know, planes had to do shorter hops. So a place where you could land and refuel was extremely important. And so the U.S. government announced that they wanted to claim sovereignty over these three islands hmm. for uh, commercial reasons. And really... That's a cover, that's a pretext for worries about the growing Japanese empire. Right. Like they want to have a foothold in the Pacific should things go wrong. Spoilers, this was not crazy. <laughs> and the Navy advises the Roosevelt administration that they can't do it, that it can't be Navy personnel who stake a claim. Because... I'm not sure. I assume it's because in the eyes of international law, it, you know, you're, you know, you want to have somebody living on the island for a year and then you say, oh boy, we've got our guys there. This is now America. Sure. It's the, it's the Homestead Act. But if it's a military installation, I don't know if international law explicitly prohibits it or if just the optics are bad. Right. I see. But you want them to be civilians. Sure. So the Navy says, not it, essentially. 
So the U.S. government is left, the Interior Department essentially, is left wanting to put someone on this island and having no one they can order to do it. <laughs> so what do you do? This seems like something that uh, you would be like a, a bureaucrat at the State Department and you would anger your boss and you'd suddenly get transferred to Howland Island. Good news. <laughs> You're the ambassador. <laughs> Somebody who gets called by their last name. Good news, Gregson. You're headed to Baker Island. Uh, in this case, what they did was they headed to Honolulu and they just sent a man and he started asking around. He went to the Bishop Museum and said, here's the deal. We want to put airstrips on these islands. What would you do? And at the Bishop Museum, they're told, hey, uh, our sister institution is the Kamehameha Schools. These were kind of the fancy upscale private schools in Hawaii at this time where all the good, well-born young men went to become the future leaders of Hawaii. And these were young men of Hawaiian ancestry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a mix of Islander and, you know, maybe some Asian and maybe some Hale. But, uh, you know, mostly these were the, the, the a newsreel I watched refers to them as young Hawaiians of royal blood. Sure, I think of Amer course. America loved the idea that we had, you know, we had this kind of royal family that we had, sent, you know, deposed basically. But, uh, but now they were good, honest, robust, surfing, hardworking citizens of America. Full of aloha. And I'm sure in the uh, Kamehameha schools, they were prohibited from speaking Hawaiian or learning Hawaiian. I don't know for sure, but I would not be surprised if that was the case. I That's, think that, that did happen for many years seems to be Hawaii. the fashion at the time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but we're proud of these young men. These are achievers. You know, this is the melting pot. Uh, even though they were here before us, we melted into them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they're the future leaders of Hawaii. So these army guys from D.C. show up at the school and talk to the principal and the principal starts calling in his best students, oh. these, you know, these 17-year-old kids at the Kamehameha Private School and saying, you're, you know, you're, imagine getting called into the principal's, you spent a lot of time in the principal's office. I sure office. did. No one ever gave me an island. Nobody ever <laughs> said, John, your government needs you. If they had, I would have been instantly transformed. Can you imagine being a kid this age and hearing, we have a mission, for, and not just that, we have a secret mission a secret for you. secret mission for you where you sail out into the unknown? Oh, can you imagine? I would not be sitting here today, I'll tell you that. I would be a moonwalker. These are the descendants of seafaring people. Yeah. So, you know, it's you know, it's deep in them that this is part of their identity. You know, you could, you know, you know, sail Moana style across a thousand miles of surf and start a, a new life for your country on insert crappy island here. Howland, Jarvis, and Baker were the first three. And they wanted native boys, possibly out of some kind of paternalistic idea that and not untrue that these were the kids who would know how to fish, how to make an outrigger canoe. Right. You know, they, they could sustain themselves on an island like this better than a bunch of clueless Navy guys. But also, they're Americans and would be, uh, they would be the natural Americans to Clay Clayton. It looks good on paper. Guys. Yeah. A bunch of kids from Honolulu decided to colonize these nearby, in quotes, islands. And hey, I guess it's American soil now. There is no soil. It's, it's, it's American, American guano. Sand, guano, and coral now. <laughs> well, it's been really interesting in the in just in our lifetimes, the Polynesian identity or the um, the South Pacific Island identity has really grown to encompass the entire sort of Pacific Ocean community from Alaska natives all the way down to, to New Maoris, Zealand. Yeah. Right. And this I this kind of growing identity that this is a population of people that are all related to one another and it's a shared culture has really started to affect the way people feel about being interconnected in a larger culture. And I've, I've seen it in Alaska especially that a lot of people from Tonga and Samoa and other Polynesian states have been sort of arriving in Alaska and asserting that they are in a familial relationship with the with the Alaska natives. It's been a powerful like identity movement. And you could see how although in the 30s this was probably the period where each island was given a very specific sort of identity and which which country colonized it and what their relationships to one it's another. It's more like were. it's a small world where they all have different outfits. But you could see yeah using Hawaiian boys to go reverse colonize these these uninhabitable islands. Maybe this is a kind of benevolent racism, but also that they're delightful people. Like, uh, if you know, anybody you meet from almost any of these Pacific Islander cultures, 
is just fantastic and like the kind of person you really want to hang out with. Except the ones that are gangsters. Except for the gangsters. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, you know, there are, there are issues with poverty and crime on a lot of these islands. Yeah. But, you know, just the family ties there, you know, like you, know, you spend an hour with these guys and they're, they want to feed you, they're jolly. They're, I love that you're sitting here talking about how, uh, how uh, Polynesians are, are, are delightful people. Am I, is it, is it too paternalistic? <laughs> it's a little bit. I'm crazy about them. <laughs> oh, their music and dance. I had Maori, so I had Maori friends as a kid. Yeah. And, you know, and they knew all the, the Samoan and the Tongan guys that were on the army base that were, you know, so we were always kind of hanging out one step removed with these guys. And it was funny how they all acted like they were related. Yeah. And I was like, how do you know Casey? Isn't Casey Samoan? Oh yeah. You know, he'd say, oh yeah, they're my, they're my, it's my, he's my uncle. He's my cousin bro or whatever. And I'd be like, isn't he Samoan and you're Maori? Yeah, but you know, we're all kind of cousins, you yeah. know? <laughs> so, uh, my best friend in high school was Tongan. And at the time in Alaska, there wasn't a huge South Pacific Islander community there. I think now there really is. Uh, and so he, but he had, he did live in that liminal space kind of between, um, between cultures. And it was, it was curious to kind of navigate that or watch him navigate it. I was just sort of drafting off of him, but like. And the boys are also told this will be good for your people. You know, this is, this is a PR exercise that will make people like Ken think of you as, uh, you know, wonderful, fantastic Americans. This is going to be great image work. You can just picture all the guys in fedoras telling these kids this, you know, like, <laughs> listen, kid. It's all these men in black types. <laughs> you're you're going to do it for America, see? <laughs> and they're getting $3 a day, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't do it for, but very good pay, I guess, back then for a Hawaiian high school kid. $3 a day, but that's being deposited into a bank account somewhere because there's, it's not like you can spend it on Howland Island. <laughs> right. We're going to pay you in lobsters. Uh, so in the summer of 1935, a Coast Guard cutter, the Itasca, secretly sails from Honolulu and aboard are some furloughed army guys and the two Hawaiian kids. So each, each, each uh, at first, each of these islands is going to be staffed by three of these furloughed army guys. And the two Hawaiian kids are kind of there for appearances sake. So five per people per island. Five people per island. Three army guys in their, in their civvies. Right. You know, and like brown shoes. Pretending, pretending to not be army guys. And then two Hawaiian boys. Yeah. And the Hawaiian kids at first are, you know, they're, they're not happy on the boat. They're, they're made to swab the deck oh, and, and serve in the mess hall. This isn't as good as it sounded. But when they get to the island... The three army guys are bored silly. They can't wait to get off. You know, imagine... Like I kind of get a little island fever just being on Maui or, or someplace where you kind of just know I can't get to can't get in anything your, in your car and drive to Idaho. If I get yeah, if I drive for two hours, I'm going to hit the other side of the island. And imagine if it was like that, except it was like walking five minutes and it was the other side of the island. Yeah, with no trees, no trees. Everything's flat and barren. They try to plant coconut palms and they all die. I mean, there's some scrub brush and there's some nesting birds. Um, but they're just basically tent camping on a tiny circle of dirt. Right. And so it's, it's a shock to the system for these, you know, well-born Hawaiian kids who are used to the streets of Honolulu, but they adapt, you know, they immediately see that, you know, there's a, there's a sheltered lagoon with a reef and they see, you, you can see these giant, nobody's ever fished there. These giant 90 pound fish, there's these ginormous lobsters and they can just see them sticking out of these shallow waters. The fish are feeding on the bottom and their tail fins stick up. And they can just walk out and grab these, the, you know, the biggest, uh, most Ono fish they've ever seen. And so this is a, you know, this would be a great, I, I noticed this when I'm in Hawaii, and this is part of my, like, attempt at aloha, is that there is a kind of comfort with the water and with the natural, with, you know, with the environment, a, just a comfort that comes from being a little kid and... Oh, and, now who's being paternalistic, John? Well, they're mean, so close to nature. It isn't that. It's that they literally yeah. are... They walk out of the school and walk into the ocean. They, they've and, been surfing. You, you go to Hawaii, you see these three-year-olds surfing or whatever. It's so incredible. It's fantastic. And I, and I envy it to such a degree that I try to find an equivalent in our own lives. Like, what am I as comfortable in as a, as a Hawaiian kid would be in the ocean? With kids today, it's an iPad. Well, but that's not me. So what what are we as comfortable in? And I guess it's just like wordplay. <laughs> Is that a for, thing? For some of my friends, it might be like a you know BMX bike or you know they were yeah you know, they were on a they were on a Hot Wheels and or sorry a big wheel and then a 
and then a trike and then a bike and that's part of their bodies. But, but yeah, you're right. For, for me, it's just like wry commentary <laughs> on events of the day. For me, it's yeah, sitcom <laughs> joke formats. <laughs> like if I saw it on Alf or give me a break, it's really part of my DNA now. But if you could trade like sitcom joke formats or wry commentary for like, yeah, for building an outrigger canoe and, and catching six lobster. What would you? No, yeah, I absolutely would. Yeah. I absolutely I think I, I would like be a happier would person. I would be placid in the in the good way. So the the kids kind of take to it. And the army guys just cannot wait to get home. The the, the uh, you know, these islands are so small that the the coast guard cutter that's supposed to drop them off takes hours to even find the island. They're going <laughs> back and forth going, where is this place? Even the even the military doesn't know where this place is. Um, but they start, you know, clearing land. They build a lighthouse. They try to plant they palm build trees. a lighthouse? They, These yeah. are my kind of people. This does for, seem like your perfect the life, right? first thing they do is build a lighthouse. It's the first thing I would do. And, uh, and so they do great. So they're, I think they're there for a few months. And the next... Whoa. So, and they had to bring their own water and stuff. Yeah, they bring like three 55-gallon drums of water, which cannot be full because otherwise you could not float them ashore. It's not easy to land on these islands. Oh, yeah. So they have to be like 55-gallon drums that are kind of full of water. <laughs> so no showers, no laundry. You, uh, you know, you, it's for drinking and brushing teeth and that's about it. And it's because it doesn't rain much on these islands. But who needs to wash your clothes or bathe? I mean, you just become like the perfect naked child. That's what these guys said. As soon as the Coast Guard pulled away, like the shorts immediately came off. And I guess some of the new kids would be like, they'd leave their shorts on for a few weeks. And then finally they'd be like, oh, hell, you know. So yeah, it was, the government created a nudist colony, (laughs) three nudist colonies in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So they're there for three months, and after three months, it's clear that the our furloughed army guys is not the way to go, that these Kamehameha private school kids is. Oh. So more kids get recruited. By the end of the project, 130, uh, you know, young strapping Hawaiian kids are living on these three islands, and two more. The, the project is expanded to Canton and Enderbury, two even smaller. Are the kids that are being recruited, are they allowed to talk to the kids that are already there? I mean, are there, are, are the, the kids that are there already, are they like, you should come? Or is there a thing where each new group is like, no, they really love it there. <laughs> they don't have to swap everybody out. I think, I think after an adjustment period, I get the impression the kids really like it. And there's newsreel footage of these kids on the island, and they are just, you know, it's, it's this amazing, you never see... You know, all this World War II era f- footage of patriotic young Americans is, you know, extremely white city Americans. And so to see like these good looking, you know, tan, shirtless kind of pan racial uh, Islander kids, you know, frolicking on these islands for their country, it's really delightful. It really kind of rewrites how we think of that period of time. And this was during a, the dawn of that like tiki culture, Polynesian fashion and style. Yeah. That's going to be a tiki bars have to be an omnibus entry. Like I still feel like that when I'm on, like part of the appeal of being in Hawaii to me, it's almost like Disneyland where it has this kind of nostalgic mid 20th century vibe. And it's nothing they did. It's what we did to fetishize their culture on the West coast into tiki culture. But it really reminds me of when, you know, America just loved Hawaii and that kind of innocent time. Yeah. Trader Vicks and whatnot. Even after the year is up, and FDR issues an executive order saying, we claim Jarvis, Baker, and Howland. They're afraid somebody else is going to be like, well, what if we build a bigger settlement on the other end of the island? And, and Britain makes a claim. Right. Um, so, so as in all good idyllic scenes, we need to introduce some guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, you know, it, it becomes a real settlement. There's no gunfire, but cabins replace tents and kerosene stoves replace these little brick ovens they were using. And the kids get these very detailed duties, most of which seem to revolve around filling out logs because there's nothing to do on (laughs) these islands. So it really is like, here's your daily duty. Uh, Look at the weather, put it in the log. Look at the birds, put them in the log. Catch some fish, put that in the log. Write about the log in the log. (laughs) It's some Dharma Foundation stuff where these kids are sitting on an island kind of pushing this button for their country. But they like it. There's, uh, it turns out that the, the endless fish and lobster is fun, so they eat well. They've got, you know, they can catch one of these big fish and dry it and eat dried mullet for months. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. There are three islands. How many kids per island? At first, it's five, and maybe that stays the complement. They just swap kids in and out. Oh, so it's not 130 kids at the same time. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they don't become little bustling cities. I see. There's a streetcar, there's a newspaper. <laughs> it's no. like Bugsy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would probably be Lord of the Flies, but I like that you went to Bugsy Malone first. Yeah. Uh, I think they still stay very small. They could have been anything that they wanted to be. Uh, the uh, you know they have cans of supplies that have been left. Water is scarce, but they have a lot of cans of supplies. They're very into corned beef, which I think is funny. Oh, I'm very into corned. Beef. I am too, but it's it's funny to me that when spam does not exist, spam will not be invented until the late 30s. These kids have the nearest thing, <laughs> <laughs> cans of cans of salty corned beef, and they're like, mmm, salty soft meat. Yeah, like whatever it is that makes spam such a hit in Hawaii is already catching on there. Um, and, and it's all very chill and aloha. They're homesick for their families and stuff. But they really like just being kids having a naked adventure on the island. Right. Not, not much downside except for boredom and they, they find stuff to do. There's, you know, and, and they, you know, the sunny aloha spirit means everything becomes an opportunity. There are rats on these islands. Really? Not endemic, but brought there by ships. How, it would seem like eradicating the rats on Howland Island could be a major summer project. You would almost get like a merit badge for it. That's what happens. It becomes their ego project. Like, you know, they're, they're getting their beards eaten at night by rats. And so the next day they have a big fun rat hunt. They, yeah. <laughs> they find a silver lining and rat hunting becomes a big hobby. I, mean, I guess they must have, they must have weapons. They well, must be target shooting at these rats. You could, you could make weapons pretty quickly. I think <laughs> seashells and this is a boy's adventure. That's, that's very appealing to me. And the commercial air stuff never actually materializes except the one exception, 1937, the kids on Howland Island are told Amelia's coming. Oh. We need to clear some ground. So they make kind of, a, they clear enough brush to make kind of a very crude airstrip. And they build her a little cabin. Somebody's mom sends curtains from Honolulu. The only <laughs> set of curtains in the, whatever this is called, the, uh, it was called the American Equatorial Island Colonization Project, mm-hmm. I think. The AEICP only had one set of curtains and it was for this cabin they had mocked up for Amelia. And even a shower, you know, these kids were not, didn't have the freshwater shower, but for Amelia, they put some, nail holes in a pipe leading from one of the drums of water. So there was going to be a shower and everybody's excited on this certain day in 1937 to watch for the plane. And of course it never shows up. Oh, so they should have given these kids a radio beacon. At first they don't even have a radio, uh, which is hilarious to me. Although eventually they do and they can, they can communicate with, with Honolulu. Amelia never shows and it. What's so very disappointing for waiting for Godot situation for these kids. But even worse, the the Coast Guard cutter, which was scheduled to bring them three more months of supplies the following week, gets diverted to try to find her crashed airplane. Right. And so they have to make do without water and corned beef for another three, you know, a month or two until the ship can stop. Well, that'll turn you into an Amelia hater. You can really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> can you imagine the stuff they were saying about her? <laughs> it, it must have been hard for the U.S. government. Like, who do we put our resources to? Women or minorities? <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't normally do either. This has never come up before. <laughs> so the the isolation actually is dangerous. Um they're fifteen hundred miles from medical care. Right. And that does become an issue. The the you know, the only peacetime fatality on of the Kamehameha colonists. By the way, I you know, I've used a name I made up just because it sounds more like a it's a more of a ska band name. But the The Kamehameha colonists. I love the Kamehameha colonists. <laughs> The, the Hawaiian name would have been the Hui Panla'au, which just means Society of Colonists or Settlers Club. That's what the boys called themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, the, you know, it's fun. It's a little boys adventure National Geographic thing. We're the, we're the Settlers Club. So the, uh, but, you know, the Hui Panla'au are, are 
a thousand miles away from healthcare. And so at one point, one of the kids has a ruptured appendix. Ah, that's a bad thing. It is, especially when you've got to, you know, get on your radio, get a boat out there and then get the boat back to the nearest military hospital in on Oahu. And in fact, he dies en route. He, oh. you know, he did not survive. So, but so, you know, not, it, it's, it's fun, but it's, it's also life and death every minute they're there. Fast forward to 1940. Dateline, 1940. Uh, Japan is now aggressively making moves across the Pacific. Yes. And the U.S. is getting very worried that these islands are not, you know, the, the cover story can go. These islands are now strategic militarily. Right. And they would be for Japan. They were trying to actually, I mean, this is why we, they bombed Pearl Harbor. I just about said this is why we bombed Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Whoa. This is why we bombed Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was an inside job? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did you ever see Building 7? <laughs> but things are getting dangerous, and that does not mean they evacuate the colonists. The Navy decides they need the colonists to stay. Like, they need American feet on those islands. Right. Um, Did they give the kids guns at this point? Surely guns arrive at some point. I think the kids must have been armed. Um, in 1941, the local Navy, the, the Navy guys in Hawaii are getting really worried and are saying... Turns out, <laughs> rightfully so... Well, don't give it away, John. I'm going to do the turns out. Okay, sorry. Spoiler alert. You, don't, you guys don't know what's going to happen on December 7th of that year. The local Navy wants to evacuate them and are told by the Pentagon, you know, are told by Washington, D.C., no. Hmm. Like, these guys need to stay. And, of course, when Pearl Harbor is bombed that December, in fact, the next day, the Japanese launch a mission on the other nearby American bases, which include... Howland Islands. No, really? So the Japanese bombed Howland. What? The day after Pearl Harbor. And it's not Navy guys. It's just, you know, half a dozen naked uh, Honolulu boys the, the, writing in their logs. The Coast Guard had a hard time finding this place even in boats, but the Japanese were able to divert enough planes that way from aircraft carriers that they... I mean, what were they bombing? Amelia Earhart's light? <laughs> they were, yeah, they were, they were bombing nothing. Yeah, they, I guess there was a cleared airstrip, which hmm. they could see over reconnaissance missions, and they were going to bomb it. And so two boys, two of the boys and the other are actually killed by shrapnel Whoa. in the bombing run. There are military fatalities to the American Equatorial Island Colonization Project. And the funny thing is, like, these kids' parents get a letter, but it's from the Secretary of the Interior. It's not from the War Department because these kids are not military. So it's a regret to inform letter, oh. but it's from Harold Ickes, the Secretary of the Interior. <laughs> and, what's, and what's more, the government decides there's no benefits to be paid. You know, they, they, they did not treat these kids as well as you would expect in some respect. And uh, in fact, their remains were left on the island Wow! in, a, in whatever makeshift grade those kids had made the next day with, with a, one of, you know, a wooden Robinson Crusoe cross this, this, until 1954. This boy's adventure just got a little hairier. It takes a kind of a dark turn, yes. Although, if it's a true boy's adventure, yeah, you should be being, you should be attacked. That's what powers all that Island of the Blue Dolphin stuff. That's right. Is like there's something mean on the, in the island and if it was all, you know, there's the blissful... Disney Swiss Family Robinson, where they're all jumping into ponds and lagoons. My dad, as a kid, had to write a book report on Swiss Family Robinson. No, I think I think he, his friend wrote a book report on Swiss Family Robinson. Maybe, now that I think about it, maybe my dad is telling this as if it's his friend, <laughs> and this is something he got in trouble for. And his friend was like, "And everything is all right till the pirates show up." And his friend got an F because the pirates are not in the book. It was right. clear that he had written his report from the Disney movie. But the pirates have to show up at the end of any kind of Swissville Robinson ideal. Well, yeah, you have to lose a couple of boys. Otherwise, there are no stakes. Stakes. <laughs> we have to do an omnibus on how everybody on the internet is now an expert on screenplay construction and experiences <laughs> what are the art. Stakes? Experiences art as a series of puzzles to be solved and plot holes to be discovered. <laughs> anyway, all three of these islands are targeted by Zeros and submarines for months. Wow. And in fact, you know, Javison, Jarvis and Baker Island didn't even know about Pearl Harbor for a couple of days because the you know, there so, weren't airstrips there. Yeah. Suddenly they lost radio connection. And finally on December 9th, they get on the radio and are like, what's going on? And the Coast Guard is like, stay off the air. And that's how they find out 48 hours later that World War One, World War II is happening and they're in the middle of the theater. Huh. Uh, they can't, you know, the war makes life worse for these kids, as you can imagine. Yeah. The, they're, all that corned beef has to go elsewhere. Yeah. Restocking is very hard, um, you know, because mi now missions to these islands are going to be scrutinized by Japanese were in state of open war. 
Water can't be restocked. They start to run low. Finally, in February, you know, fully two to three months after Pearl Harbor, these kids are brought back to Honolulu. Oh, oh, the islands are evacuated. Yeah, they are, they are evacuated um, two months into the war. After, you know, but after two months of being targeted by planes and subs, they're not allowed to tell anybody where they've been. They're encouraged, I guess, to get a job and then re-enlist. I don't know why they have to get a job first. Like, it's just better optics, I guess, if they don't go straight from a, if it, if it looks like this peaceful interior department project does not immediately segue into the military, I guess. They're 18, I guess. Yeah, huh? these kids are now, these kids are now no longer 16, 17 or whatever they were. They're now 18, 19, 20. Uh, well, I mean, the, I don't know how long some of these kids stayed, but the project started in 35. Wow, so sure. I don't know if any of them made it the full five or six years, but they could have, you know, these kids could be five or six years older than when anything started. And that's what happened. You know, Jarvis and Baker and Howland Islands stayed uninhabited for the rest of the war. They, no, nobody ever built any airstrips there, commercial or military. There's still lighthouses on them. Um, they're uninhabited today. They became bird preserves. Oh yeah. Wildlife refuges. So, so, I mean, futurelings may be listening, avian futurelings may be saying, what do you mean uninhabited? What do you mean? They're, it, th these were like the, like, uh, the original a, colonies for my entire race. Like that's their Hawaii, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's their vacation destination. Like we love going there and just pooping, pooping, pooping. It's a, <laughs> like after a, after a, you know, a hard couple of months of the office, sometimes you just have to go to the beach and just have somebody bring you a drink with an umbrella in it and poop for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's only inhabited by, by birds, your, your ancestors. Birds and fishes. Birds and fishes. It's an idyllic as it was then, uh, aside from the possibilities of overfishing, I guess. Sorry about that future earth. Um, and well, no, it's also probably 10 feet under the, under the water. For right? them, yeah. So it's just fishes, not birds. Tall, uh, leg, tall legged birds. Very tall birds. Flamingos <laughs> can barely walk there. Uh, and the story was pretty much untold until... 2002, you know, as I said, in 1954, the families were able to successfully petition for the two military fatalities to be brought back and, you know, buried near some barracks on Oahu. But in 2002, the local, the Bishop Museum, the big local history museum in Honolulu, staged an exhibit about these kids. And luckily, some of the men were still alive. Oh, cool. A handful were still alive. So these guys got to, and it's funny, you know, you, you can read the logs in the museum. And all these like super well-educated kids, the best and the brightest of, of Honolulu, you know, they write lovely kind of fluid observations of, you know, what it's like on this tropical paradise that's not really a tropical paradise and the fun hijinks they get up to. It's all, uh, it's all delightful reading. It's like the, the Ken Burns Civil War letters. I recommend future links check that out if those records still exist. And finally, getting all these guys together to tell their sto tell their stories, to assemble their oral histories, the Department of Defense is kind of shamed into moving these two early, you know, early World War II heroes to the actual veterans cemetery mm -hmm. on Oahu, which is where they rest today with honors. Um, and it's a good thing that happened in 2002 because uh, the last of the Pui Panalao died in November 2016, just two and a half years ago, our time. And all these kind of early unsung heroes of America's last colonization effort, not to mention the Second World War, are, uh, are with us no more. And that concludes the Kamehameha Colonists, entry 681.IS4204, certificate number 22194 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, sitting there on your little atoll, up to your ankles in guano. <laughs> no, no, it's all guano in the future. Uh, or, you know what? It, we may be speaking to intelligent guano, in which case we're going to have to change our whole attitude. We should, if we're talking to intelligent coral, we probably shouldn't just call them islands. They, they wouldn't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, that's the kind of thing where people on the internet expect that I would ring a bell. And I refuse steadfastly. It does kind of go along with the uh, movies are uh, are a puzzle for me to solve. Yeah. It, it, mistaking puns for jokes, <laughs> they're they're not the same thing. Jokes are good and yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Bells are reserved for jokes. But also, you don't have your bell. Stop pretending like your bell scarcity is an artistic choice. Oh, hey, that was pretty good. Yeah. I could give you a bell. Wait, how did your coffee cup change pitch when you hit it? Oh, it was a different part of the pen, I think. That's the handle. That's the button. 
That's amazing. If you were a stuck on like Jarvis Island, that would be like three weeks worth of fun. Sure, I can communicate with the other <laughs> islands that way. Uh, go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and hang out with us at Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. We have good old times. Ken and I both stay up late, so they're often really funny tweets at 11 p.m. Pacific time. I don't. I won't tweet anything funny at 11 p.m. Oh, Pacific. I am at my best at 11 between 11 and 2 a.m. I'll write it down on a little post-it and I'll oh, post it in the morning. you save it because you're looking for optics. You want to get numbers. Well, what I'm looking for is, you know, you got to feed the beast. And I know I'm not going to have any ideas at 11 o'clock the following morning. Right, I see what you're saying. I'm only alert at a time when nobody cares to listen to me. It's, it's why great I, tragedy of, of West Coast life. It's why I have so many followers in New Zealand and Australia because I'm giving them top content <laughs> in the middle of their day. They are not used to the primo stuff. <laughs> they're used to getting American TV, but like, you know, they, they're getting Breaking Bad now. Yeah, but I'm on there in the middle of the night just just letting zingers fly. I posted a picture of myself eating a chili burger and a, and a sundae at one o'clock That's in the your deep love night. for Pacific Rim culture. It is. You're giving them the best Roderick content. Um, I'm also on Instagram, a lot of sexy selfies there. And you, you seem can, excited about that. I'm also on Instagram. Well, I just can't tell whether, I, I, I don't know what to go to bat for anymore. I can't tell whether Instagram is bad or good anymore. It's all connected to the, the giants. It's owned by Facebook. It's bad. Unless they sponsor this episode, in which case. It's great. They're good. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can uh, mail us actual mail at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155. And you can communicate with us and other Omnibus Futurelings at the Futurelings Facebook page on the aforementioned Facebook. You can ping notes with a ballpoint pen on your coffee mug and just hope that we hear you. You can go on the Facebook page or on Twitter or anywhere that war bonds are sold. And yell at me when I don't ring a bell for Ken's, like, insulting puns. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long human civilization will survive. We hope and pray that the cataclysm that keeps John up nights worrying and tweeting at New Zealand uh, may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. This is the last thing that gets inscribed in the gold record. But if providence allows, if the if the volcano god Pele and the uh, hook-holding uh, demigod Maui... I'm, I'm now out of Hawaiian deities. <laughs> Why weren't there more in Moana? If, uh, if all this entire pantheon of... Uh, of Shark's Tooth Wearing God's Allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.